0: Hello again, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another exciting, action-packed, infotainment special edition of the Wit and Whiskey Cast. I, of course, am your one of your hosts, Mark city Jr. Here along for the ride is going to be the Pat Summerall to my John Madden. Boom! It's DJ Gagnon. Hi, everybody. <laughs> we this week are gonna talk about. Probably DJ's favorite thing in the world. Next to really peaty bog water, we're going to talk about the king of sports in America American football.
1: Yeah, it's my three favorite things in the world American football, peaty whiskeys, and literally any poop in my video games. You are very anti categorical in your video games. I use video games to escape. I don't need to be reminded that poop exists. Now, are you a person that does not enjoy a poop?
0: Like, you know, do you camp out in the bathroom? Do you bring reading material? Do you bring, like, your phone, your Switch, anything like that?
1: Um, uh, I mean, this is weirdly personal on a rather <laughs> public forum, but, uh, I mean, I do bring a book usually. Alright, well, okay,
0: no, good. You're not just one of those people that's all business-like. You don't, you're not just in there for two minutes and you leave. Okay, good.
1: No, that's what I was getting at. No, I mean, I, uh, as a rule, I don't, I don't like pooping outside of my house. Well, now, see, I can
0: understand that. There is nothing better than after a long car trip, especially, you know, just going in and setting up on your own throne.
1: I, I can understand that. Yeah, no, I, I have bad enough anxiety that I have to wear headphones when I go into a, a public restroom. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm not proud of it, but, you know, maybe if I'm open about it, other people will be too, and we won't have to feel ashamed. No,
0: there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's like the book says, everybody
1: poops. Yeah, but nobody needs to hear me do it, and I don't need to hear me do it in public, so it's fine. <laughs>
0: This is the weirdest opening to a football and whiskey podcast in recorded history, but I kind of dig it. And well, we got here naturally.
1: I, I mean, the, uh, I, I'll make a segue for you. It's a crap sport. <laughs> oh, but um, bum. We always have. There's one Englishman on the podcast every time. <laughs> all
0: right, but before we get into that, what did you do this week besides poop with headphones?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have to poop with headphones because I work from home all day, so. Uh, it's all good. Um, no, it, it was a pretty good weekend. We didn't have to, you know, run around the house with, uh, electric heaters all weekend. We, we actually had heat this weekend, which was nice. Uh, it got fucking cold in New Hampshire. Um, we had like a weird, like crazy rain and windstorm that <laughs> I, I don't know what happened, but it, it was a little bonkers. And then everything was a sheet of ice for a couple of days. Um, but no, other than that, uh, Holly and I are running through and doing a marathon of all of the Spider-Man movies Um, and I have a great deal of appreciation for the MCU now, having watched the original Spider-Man trilogy. Oh, they're not that bad. I absolutely love one and two. I had never seen three before and I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad I know how that story ends and I don't ever need to see it again.
0: Yeah, I'm generally uh, very – I get very angry when filmmakers break the final part of a trilogy or a series of movies into two parts. You know, your Harry Potters, your Twilights, your Kill Bills, anything like that. But but Spider-Man 3 really needed to
1: be at least two movies. It it was, like, four movies, man. Like, there were so many plots. I said at least two. <laughs> it, it was absurd. Like, that, that movie had so many different plot lines in it. And I wanted, I really wanted to like it. But, man, Tobey Maguire deserved better. And hashtag not my Venom.
0: I always, like, forget and don't put two and two together that the kid from that 70s show was, was Venom. Mm-hmm and it's just always like oh yeah that was also a thing
1: yeah that was also crap but my boy was in
0: it Thomas Hayden Church and he was awesome like he was in everything
1: so. was he was he flint marco
0: he well he was sandman yeah
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. he he was weirdly good uh, He's I, weirdly
0: but, good in everything
1: i i don't i can't picture other things i've seen him in but like you know it's a weird movie when you're rooting for a guy named Sandman. <laughs> he's uh, he's done a lot of uh,
0: TV sitcoms of various popularity. Uh, Wings was a big one. Uh, my personal favorite show, uh, Ned and Stacy. He was on that. He's done a lot of weird movies. He was in We Bought a Zoo. He was in that god awful wine trip movie about like going to different wineries and tasting wine and stuff. He was in that. But like a lot of the stuff he's in isn't very good, like Spider-Man 3, but he's awesome.
1: Yeah, I guess he was somebody in Hellboy in 2019.
0: He could have been. I didn't see the new Hellboy, so but if he's in it, I might have to now.
1: Yeah, he he's a character named Bobster Johnson. That checks. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, But yeah, other than that, it was a pretty rote week. Uh, How about you, buddy?
0: Well, we also got that uh, storm that you were speaking of. Only for us, it went uh, snow, ice, rain, ice, snow. So we had a nice little uh, seasonal lasagna outside. And then it also didn't help that it got very warm Monday afternoon and started to melt everything, and then it refroze last night. So basically, everything is like an igloo. There's just layers of shit. Yeah. Uh, Friday, I went out and bought another car. Of course you did. <laughs> Which uh, was sort of an impulse buy. Um, Facebook Marketplace should be legal. Uh, you know, we have we have help for any type of addiction. We don't have help for that. It's just, it's so easy. You could browse it on your lunch. You don't have to leave your desk. And then the next thing you know, you've sent a deposit to a creepy guy in central Philly. Uh, so, you know, I bought an 87 Camaro, the Lamborghini of the trailer park, the IROC Z Camaro, And like I said, it was originally an impulse buy and I drove it home from Philadelphia on Friday trying to uh, beat the storm. And let me tell you, it's only about a two hour and 10 minute drive as the crow flies, uh, depending on, you know, if you take if you take the inner, not the interstate turnpike, it's pretty much just a straight shot. Two hours, 10 minutes, two hours, five minutes when you don't have a radio or a heater. It is the longest drive you've ever had in your entire life. (laughs) Uh, So I was by myself uh, doing that, the old man following behind me. And so I originally bought it and was like, cool, I'm going to keep this and just kind of, you know, fix some of the little bugs and drive it. And then I started decoding it and it's a very, very, very high option model. And I have to actually get into the nitty gritty and run some of the codes that are on the trim tag. But it's a possibility that this might be a one of 900 only, which I had no idea when I bought it. It just looked cool. So then I was like, well, cool. I'll just fix up the little odds and ends that are done and I'll flip it and I'll make a couple grand on top of what I already made. And the wife said no. The wife wants to drive it. So, uh, at least for the summer anyway, nice. <laughs> I'm going to have uh, an 87 I Rock to go with the uh, Cosworth Vega that I bought six weeks ago or seven weeks ago or however the fuck long it's been. And, you know, she's all about it because it's an automatic. She could drive it. And it's a T-top car. So when it's the summer or whatever, she'll pull the roof off and go riding around. Um, so, I don't know. Stay tuned for that. We'll have a lot of weird pictures, I guess. (laughs) But this is probably the first time in recorded history I was like, eh, maybe I'll get rid of this and just, nope. (laughs) So here we are. That's fantastic. Uh, It it will be. It should be fun. I mean, the car mechanically is sound. There's just a few little odds and ends of bugs. $500, it'll be mint.
1: Oh, no. Uh, Another car project. Mark. I know. I'm just tore up about it. Can you tell? Uh, yeah, I, I can see you're really bent out of shape. But
0: that well, there'll be update, more updates on that as we go along. But for now, what are you drinking this week? Because somebody said they were going to do cocktails the whole way out.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I still want to do cocktails uh, for the rest of the season after this episode. But I wanted to go for one more whiskey. <laughs> Uh, and I inadvertently uh, picked myself up a whiskey that was a collaboration by uh, the distiller Dave Pickerel and Metallica. Kind of going back to Uh-oh. that, uh, you know, oh. celebrities making whiskey. So we did this on Whiskey News once, I think. We I think we did, and that's kind of why it caught my eye. So I picked up uh, a whiskey called Blackened American Whiskey. It's a blend of uh, straight whiskeys finished in black brandy casks. And it's pretty good. <laughs> I really enjoy it. I believe uh, part of its um, blend is actually rye, because it's definitely got that that hit to it. Mm. It's good. <laughs> that it's is like a
0: sound of approval, folks. Yeah, it's
1: a nice deep golden color. Um, ooh, it's got like a really nice backbone of pepper. Um, and it does have a nice burn on it, but the burn doesn't linger. You just kind of end up with this nice, like charred black taste on your tongue, which is really strange. Generally like these kinds of, uh, smoky charry whiskeys that they, the burn tends to linger with this one, the, the burns over like that. And then it's just, you just get that, that nice charred heat. It's really good I definitely recommend it It's kind of a weird uh, A weird flavor profile Because of how quick that burn lasts But um, Yeah I definitely recommend it, it It's really tasty uh, it, it was a pretty good price point too I uh, I think it was like 45 bucks And it was 5 bucks on sale So about 50 um, It's 90 proof So you know it, It's not going to knock your socks off right away at least um, but yeah, it's really good. I, I tend to like things that are cask-aged, and I love the idea of black brandy casks. It's just, it sounds very emo in a great way.
0: Who says Metallica hasn't done anything good since Ride the Lightning? Mm. But nevertheless, that sounds pretty good. I'll have to keep an eye on it, although here in Pennsylvania, we don't get a lot of a fun celebrity whiskies. Although, someone told me that down in Allentown... There was a couple of bottles of the ZZ Top bourbon, but I haven't had a chance to to hop
1: on the turnpike and go take a look. I, I figured that's where you were aiming with your beard, Mark. So, yeah, you're definitely going to need to get a bottle <laughs> yeah. of that. Billy Gibbons and
0: I share a great deal of interests. Uh, beers, Beards, beers, hot rods, whiskey. He plays guitar. I play bass, but, you know, electric instruments. <laughs> Uh, well, for me, on the other hand, I uh, picked up a bottle of uh, Bellmead sour mash straight bourbon whiskey, or you might see it written online, just Bellmead Classic. And this is uh, the it's the entry level bourbon of the signature line of the Nashville distillery. So the Nashville Distillery has a couple different labels, a couple different brands. Bell Mead is their high-end brand, but this is the entry level on their high-end brand, if that makes any sense. And I really like it because it is a very high rye bourbon. Uh, the the mash bill it's roughly sixty percent corn, roughly thirty six percent rye, and four percent malted barley. It has an age statement of six years, although the Nashville Distillery claims that some barrels are kept. Uh, unse- or kept sealed, rather, for up to eight years. So they give it a six- to eight-year range, unofficially. Uh, it's from the—it's bottled in Indiana, even though it's a national distillery, and it is just uh, fantastic. They use a, a charred oak barrels, uh, generally new. They don't reuse really barrels. And so it gives you sort of that light caramel color and— You have some sweets, but they're like a heavier sweet. They're almost like a toffee or like a peanut brittle even. And then you get into the corn and the oak from the casks, and then you just get some nice spice. And that stays through to the whole middle. Like that hits you right on the nose, and it kind of hangs And then you get sort of like a well-balanced bit of corn and almost vanilla, and then you just get that burn. You get that rye bite and then that burn at the end. Nice. But it's pretty light overall. I mean, I would say this is a a medium to even a light medium. This is not some of the the heavy hitter stuff that we usually uh, review here. Uh, I really like it. It was $38. It was on sale, so it's probably about $42 to $45 normally, depending on the way the prices here work with sales. So it's definitely uh, reasonable for the quality. And it's uh, 92 proof. I don't know if I mentioned that or not. So you get a decent punch, but it's not going to knock you on your ass. You know, you could have a glass or two and really enjoy it. And just overall, it's balanced, and it's just the right amount of heat, just the right amount of smooth, and I recommend it, especially if you like rye. It's high rye bourbon. Can't go wrong.
1: I've enjoyed a rye occasionally. I I think I could try that out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah.
0: So, all right, take us to the tools of the trade. What are we doing for this? Uh, I I see it on the list here, and I'm I'm intrigued to where we're going to go with this.
1: Well, I figured since we're, you know – Talking about football, it it might be nice to, you know, (laughs) bring some class, shall we say, to this episode. Uh, So I thought I would do some research on pairing different kinds of liquors with different um, meats and whatnot for a charcuterie board. Uh, You know, most Super Bowl parties are like wings and pizza. But, you know, if you feel like going a little bit fancy... Um, you can crack out some good whiskeys, you can crack out some good gin, and, uh, you can kind of seek out some of the less traveled area of your local meat store. So, uh, let's get into it. So I, luckily the list that I found that, that I ended up kind of agreeing with, uh, starts off with rye and they recommend, uh, pairing rye with some high fat content, cured meats uh they recommend like a summer sausage or a salami uh the the thought there being that the high proof of the rye is going to complement uh something fatty something smoked uh and that you'll get uh that there's i guess there's an interesting connection between um the high fat content in the meat and the tannins from the wood aging so uh you know, ryes, bourbons, and scotches, you're probably going to want to pair it with things that are, are nicely smoked. Um, and uh, the specifically rye, pairs well with high fat. Uh, bourbons, they pair well with smoky flavors. But the cool thing about bourbons, for anybody who's a whiskey drinker, um, you know, bourbons tend to be a little bit on the sweeter side. So the recommendation here is to pair a bourbon with something spicy uh, to kind of offset each other. Um, So you can do something like a andouille sausage, maybe do some chorizo, um, you know, maybe even some beef jerky type things. Um, You know, I'd probably lean more towards the andouille side of the fence, but, you know, to each their own. Um, Then we get into scotch, and, I mean, scotch is pretty easy, right? Smoked scotch goes with smoked meats. Uh, things that are um, really deep in flavor with the smoke, but not necessarily overly fatty. Um, they're they're kind of recommending going with a scotch uh, that's barrel-aged, maybe with a sherry barrel, um, and then you can pair that up with uh, something that goes nicely with that. Um, Something that might be a little bit on the sweeter side where the smokiness of the scotch can offset it. Uh, And then we get into gin. Uh, Gin, I thought, was pretty interesting because they recommend uh, instead of pairing, you know, the liquor itself with, you know, a, a quality of the meat, pairing it with the flavorings that go into the meat. Um... The nice thing about gin is it doesn't really require fat to balance its flavors, so you can go with something a little bit leaner. Uh, still smoked, um, but generally things that are seasoned with fennel or citrus, like a porchetta. Um, you know, there's some some options there. Uh, they also recommend duck prosciutto, which honestly I've never. Uh, I've never seen it. I'd be all about it. that. Yeah, I, I mean, that sounds amazing, right? They, they say that it's uh, it goes well with gin because it's it's less fatty and more um, oily, which is fine. You know, uh, gin and oil can can mix. But um, duck prosciutto tends to be cured with herbs. Um, but you might also look out for something called a fin... finiciona? Uh, man, I can't pronounce these Italian words. Um, but it's it's basically a fennel salami. Uh, it goes really well with a gin. And the last one they recommend is an Amaro. Uh, and Amaros work kind of like gins, uh, but they recommend pairing it with something a little bit more earthy. Uh, you know, maybe like a liverwurst or a, a, a fernet uh, or a speck, something like that. Uh, and they recommend that if you're not... A, if you're not well-versed in Amaro's and you want to get into it, uh, they recommend uh, beginning maybe with something like a Nonino, uh, which is uh, infused with saffron and orange. Uh, it, I guess they call it the gateway drug for people that don't like Amaro. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was... Uh, yeah, I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, these recommendations cam- came from Jeff Fail, the beverage director for the Neighborhood Restaurant Group's uh, latest Washington, D.C. opening, The Partisan. So something to uh, consider there. Uh, feel free to check out The Partisan in D.C. I'm hoping that that's still open. Uh, th- this article was written in 2018. Uh, but gives you some good options there. Um, if, if I were to hazard, I guess, on expanding this a little bit, I might pair something salty with scotch as well. I don't, I don't know why that makes sense in my head. Um, but I, I, A little
0: feel, caviar, I could go with that. A little yeah. caviar
1: and a nice single malt. Yeah, or, or some nice, you know, you can quick pickle some of your own vegetables if you'd like. Um, you know, some a, a nice pickled beet might go well with... Uh, you are with, so bougie. I, I know. <laughs> I really am. I'm so extra. It's not even (laughs) funny. Um, But yeah, I, you know, I, I have some friends who actually smoke their own meat as well. So there's some definitely some options there uh, depending on how you want to pair things. And if you got a bunch of time in your hands and want to experiment, try smoking things uh, with some fennel and, and some citrus and, and uh, try out that gin or Amaro pairing. I think that would be really tasty.
0: I just love the fact, you know, for years and years, I used to have uh, Super Bowl parties, and they used to be quite the rager. And a lot of my friends would bust my balls because partly they did it because I was cheap. I didn't go out and buy just, you know, the cheese and crackers and salami platters that were already pre made because that was a lot more money. So I would buy the blocks of cheddar and I would buy the the blocks of mozzarella and and the things of brie and i would cut up my own and they were making fun of me for that like ooh la la mr i have to cut it up myself and you're just like you could quick pickle some stuff it's <laughs> no big deal
1: yeah i mean it only takes like what 15 minutes to quick pickle a jalapeno that's nothing you
0: heard it here first folks
1: yeah i mean imagine that like uh, a nice quick pickled jalapeno quick p- pickled with some lime and some sugar a little bit of salt pair that with a nice bourbon You're off to the races, man. What do you got for uh, whiskey news this week, mate?
0: Well, this is something that probably won't apply to a lot of our listeners. Hell, it probably won't apply to us most of the time. But, you know, this weekend I went and I made an impulse buy when it came to a car. And I'm lucky in that I've grown up in that world and I know what to look for and I know what to check out to make sure something is legit. So this article from the New York Times caught my eye because it's sort of in the same vein, but it's for whiskey. It's about the increasing number of just blatant counterfeit bottles of expensive whiskey. Now, for the most part across this uh, article, they're talking about bottles that will retail for $1,000 and up. So again, most of it is not going to apply to our listeners or to us. But if it does apply to you, and hey, salut, if it does apply to you, let me tell you, uh, here's a few things to keep on the lookout for because there is a very limited number. I mean, any of the Van Winkles, we, we talked about it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. You know, Pennsylvania literally does a lottery for the opportunity to buy a bottle. Mm. That's how few there are. So you have an incredibly small supply, you have an incredibly great demand. Uh, let's be honest. We're part of, we're guilty of this too. Uh, whiskey tasting, whiskey collecting, whiskey enthusiastism is all on the rise. Uh, people are at home now a lot more. They're working from home. They're hanging out at home a little bit more. Having a, a little drab in the morning, it's not uh, nearly as taboo as it was. So this all contributes. So if you're going to go and buy a really expensive bottle, uh, here's a few things you could do. One of the easiest ones, and one of the ones that I was surprised was so blatant, and uh, the, the example this article gives is Pappy Van Winkle, but you could do it with pretty much any of these high-end whiskeys. Uh, most of them have a unique number or unique identification code, or at the very least on the label you could see the barrel, uh, the date, the cask, all that sort of thing. Well, if you go on eBay and you just punch in any expensive brand of whiskey you're thinking of, all these results for empty bottles come up. And, of course, they're being marketed to collectors, you know, people like you and me that can never actually have a bottle of this. But, hey, you can have an empty bottle. Well, most of these people, the vast majority, don't watermark. They don't do anything. So you could read all the identification codes. You could read all the numbers right in these pictures on the eBay. So that's the first thing. And eBay lets you sca- uh, search previous sales. So if you're looking for an old bottle, search there first. Search uh, the couple different uh, whiskey auction sites uh, that are out there. Uh, Whiskey.auction.com is a big one. Whiskey Jug's another one. Search all their listings. Make sure none of these bottles are there. If it's supposedly an older bottle, look at the glass. And I understand this is a little bit easier for me because I'm a historian. I work with older glass all the time, but older glass is thicker. Older glass is heavier. They couldn't shape it anywhere near the way we could shape glass today, at least not on a a mass production scale. I mean, artisan glass blowers have always been a thing, but mass production, we've only really gotten good in the last 60, 70 years. Mm. Uh, you can also just tell the aging. I mean, it's going to be discolored. It's going to have marks on it. The labels should be discolored. The labels should have running marks. Check the corks. A lot of these high-end whiskeys have corks. You can tell pretty easily if someone has put a cork back in a bottle. Yeah. You know, when it, when a cork is put in properly, there's only one way it sits. And if you ever had a bottle of champagne and you've ever put a cork back in a bottle... You know what that is. You know what that looks like. Look around the rim, uh, the neck of the bottle, for scratch marks and for twisting and, you know, things that make it seem like it was opened or something was forced in it again. Check for that. Uh, trust your gut. You know, if something just doesn't seem right, uh, walk away. That, that's another big one. The biggest problem with this that the article goes into is that a lot of the major distillers, don't want to acknowledge this problem exists. (laughs) So if you were to contact, you know, say a Buffalo Trace, or you were going to, you know, contact uh, any of these other distillers, you're going to get the runaround. They're not really going to do a whole hell of a lot. Now, thankfully, Scotland, as is usually the case, they're starting to uh, uh, take the lead here because... Counterfeiting of scotches has been going on much longer than bourbons or American whiskeys. So a lot of places are actually starting to put holographic seals on their bottles. A lot like what with, with Cuban cigars. If you've ever had a real bo- box of true Cubans, it has a hologram. Um McClellan, for instance, they're a big Scottish distillery now that has started putting uh, holograms on their uh seals. Uh Oh, God. There's another kind of Scottish distillery that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Uh, A-R-D-N-A-M-U-R-C-H-A-N. <laughs> They're adding QR codes to the back of their bottles as well. Oh, nice. Uh, so that's another thing. So, you know, and again, it's like buying anything else. Do your homework. Look at everything online. Trust your gut. And never trust a really pushy seller. Especially if it's online, especially if you're only looking at it online, if, you know, if the seller is really hassling you and he's, you know, hey, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, no, if it really is what they say it is, he'll have 10 other guys that'll buy it. If you walk away, he doesn't need you. So that's just my advice for that. I thought this was really interesting. I thought it was pretty serendipitous with the whole, just kind of going in blind and buying a car. Um, and you know, who would have thought that the, uh, producer of the american pie movies is not only a big whiskey collector but is apparently one of the leading fighters of counterfeiting whiskey Mm -hmm. he's interviewed in this throughout this article so really cool uh if you're interested it's on the new york times website it's only about a week old and uh yeah so just keep your eyes peeled if you're in
1: the market for a really high-end bottle Interesting. Yeah. I never really, I mean, I guess I'm glad I am, I do not have the problem of having to worry (laughs) if my whiskey is fake. Yeah. And I mean, they have a
0: few anecdotes there of places that should have known better restaurants and clubs and things that should have known better and then ended up getting burned. And eventually the only way they actually found out was they sent the bottle away to be tested. And lo and behold, Hey, this bottle of scotch, that was supposed to be a single malt from 1913, Yeah, we actually think it's from about 1975. So have fun. Mm. I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, should we move on to the topic at hand?
1: Uh, Well, that's uh, the end of the episode, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) I hope you had a... (laughs) Oh, shit. We're only 30 minutes in, huh? We're only 31 minutes in,
0: so we're going to have to blitz through this. I have copious notes. I I can, I can see that. Now, I'm going to give our listeners a little heads up here. We are going to talk about the early formation of American football, which I will pretty much just call football from here on out. Because again, as we talked about in the sports ball episode, the English invented the word soccer. I don't know why they get so mad when people use it. They're the ones who invented it. But for, we're going to talk about the formation of American football. And we're basically going to go up to the Super Bowl. And we're going to stop when the Super Bowl started for three reasons. Number one, because this episode has to end at some point. Number two, because the modern era of the NFL, the post-Super Bowl era, the post-merger era, 1970 and on, has been covered ad nauseum to death. I mean, go on ESPN Plus, go online, just 90% of the histories that are written about the NFL cover that era. And the third reason is the NFL has this really annoying thing that they do where basically nothing that happened before the Super Bowl matters. You know, there are numerous teams, for example, that have loads and loads and loads of championships. The the Green Bay Packers have something like 13 championships, but they only won three Super Bowls. So the NFL only ever talks about their three Super Bowls. It's really weird. Like in the history books and in the record books, the NFL recognizes everything from 1920 to 1970. But they never talk about it, and I don't understand why. So we're going to talk about it. So let's start at the very beginning, shall we? Sure. (laughs) Football, American football, is one of numerous games that evolved from what we Americans call soccer. You have soccer itself, you have traditional rugby, you have rugby sevens, you have American football, you have Canadian football. All of these games came from the same birthplace. And even before traditional soccer, you have these English mob games that were being played in the 1700s and the 1800s, where literally entire towns would come out and they would play on a side. You'd have 30, 40, 50 people on a side. And you would try to get a ball across a town, and these were insane affairs. Basically, think like gangland fights, but in the context of sporting event. Very little rules, um, very low scoring, very bloody, very violent, very destructive. And it's from here that American football begins, and particularly in the colleges. So Princeton had their own version. They called it Ballon, B-A-L-L-O-W-N. And they began playing this game in 1820. A few years later, Harvard began what they called Bloody Monday, which this was fantastic. They used to uh, put the sophomores against the freshmen. and Basically, the whole idea was you would just violently attack the freshmen. Uh, on the grounds of Harvard while playing this game. And the idea was to just beat them up and injure them as much as humanly possible. And that started from 1827, and then eventually was banned in 1860 because the town of Cambridge just came out and said, enough. These are just controlled riots under the guise of hazing. Yale followed suit also in 1860. They banned all types of football games, football, soccer, uh you know, town games, anything like this, because, again, you would just have the better part of a 100 people congregating in a riot trying to play this game. Meanwhile, all this is going on, rugby starts to break away from soccer. You have William Webb Ellis. He's, according to legend, the first man to ever pick up a soccer ball and run with it. And he did that in 1823. And, you know, I was always a big fan of his, even as a kid, because that was one thing that never resonated to me as a kid with soccer. I was like, just pick the ball up. Just go. Just carry the ball. Well, William Will Elvis did it in 1823. And so that started to break away. You would have what the running game, which eventually became rugby. So 1860, pretty much across New England, all collegiate versions of football are banned. However, this doesn't last very long because the students really like it. The schools want to keep the students happy. So pretty much after the Civil War, uh, these games are reintroduced. And in 1867, Princeton becomes the first major school to sit down and formally adopt a codified set of rules. But the thing is, they actually adopt the rules of the London Football Association. (laughs) What? And and the London Football Association, for those of you who don't know, is still the governing body to this very day of soccer. So they basically sit down and say, we're going to play by soccer's rules. And soon soon after, a bunch of other New England schools follow suit. Interestingly enough, however, the Montreal Football Club, and of course Montreal, Canada, adopts what they refer to as the running game which is the derivative of what uh, Mr. Webb Ellis began with picking up the ball and carrying it. So keep that in mind. That's going to come into play later. Now, if you've ever been to Rutgers in New Jersey, all over campus at Rutgers, they have big signs everywhere. The birthplace of college football. The birthplace of college football. And yes they did play in what is considered and recognized by the NCAA as the first collegiate football game. It was held on November 6th, 1869 and Rutgers actually won it They won it six to four. But I'm going to go over some of the rules and you tell me if this sounds like football to you.
1: They played with a completely round ball. Yes. That sounds like football. (laughs) You bastard! <laughs> they they played
0: with twenty five men on a side. Um, you could only you could only score by kicking the ball into a goal, and the game ended once one team reached six goals. Hence the six to four final score. Now, a week later, they had a rematch at Princeton. And they played under some modified rules, which saw Princeton win 8-0. to zero. And again, it was pretty much a soccer game. But one of the modified rules allowed any player to jump in the air and catch a ball on the fly. So, you know, if somebody kicked the ball really far down the field, you could jump in the air and catch this ball. And then they would whistle the, the play dead and you would get a free kick. Wait, with your feet? No, 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 with your hands.
1: All right, because I'm just picturing Princeton Ninjas running around this field right
0: now. <laughs> no, 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 no. You could jump up and catch the ball. Like, so imagine like what a soccer goalie does when he runs out and you know jumps up and catches the ball. You could do that in the field. And if you did that, they would whistle the play dead, and they would award you a free kick. Now, that just sounds like some weird-ass 1869 quirk in Princeton's home rules. But this still technically exists buried in the NFL rulebook today. This is the fair catch kick, one of the most obscure rules in the NFL that hasn't been utilized since the mid-70s, but it's still perfectly legal to do in football today, and it comes back directly to this first recognized football game. And really, it's the only link between what we consider football and this weird-ass soccer game. So... The game continued to evolve, and by the early 70s, so you know, it was 1869 was the, was the first recognized game between Rutgers and Princeton. 1870, 1871, 1872, all these schools are playing each other. New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, all of New England, colleges are playing each other. Every school has their own set of rules.
1: And I like that. It's most... kind of like a chaos, like every school is their own league. Yes, essentially. And I mean, a lot of the big
0: stuff was the same, but a lot of the big stuff wasn't the same. And you, what you would do was you would play by the home team's rules. So you would often see these series where, you know, I'm going to go up to DJ's house in New Hampshire and I'm going to play DJ's team. Well, then the next week he's going to come down here to Pennsylvania and he's going to play my team or to play by my rules. And so most of the time, the home team would just win, and the series would be a one-one tie, and absolutely nothing would be gained. So, uh, to do this, the schools realized they weren't—they were getting nowhere. You—you you could not form a league based on this, as DJ said. Every team was basically their own league. <laughs> so, in 1873, Yale, Columbia, Princeton, and Rutgers all meet in New York City, and they—they come up with a standardized set of rules that was based on a hybrid of. Uh, The Football Association, who we mentioned earlier, and the Rugby Union, which is now the new governing body for this new sport of rugby. Rugby Union had only been formed in 1871, so it's only two years old at this point. Harvard, however, did not like any of this. And so they left, and they kept playing by their own rules, which gave us the Harvard versus McGill game. So in 1874, now one year following the New York Conference, Harvard played McGill University. And McGill University is in Montreal. And remember what we said about the Montreal Football Club. They adopted the running game. Up in Canada, they had still been playing their own version of football, much like they still do to this day. So the first game was played under Harvard's rules, which is pretty much soccer. And Harvard won 3 nothing. The second game, however, was played in Montreal under McGill's rules. And it was pretty much just modified rugby, what they were still calling the running game. And it was a nothing-nothing draw. Hmm. However, Harvard loved this shit. They <laughs> of loved, course they did. They loved the idea of picking the ball up. They loved the idea of running. They loved the idea of tackling. And they especially loved what in rugby they call the try. And if you've never seen a rugby game, the try is just what rugby calls a touchdown. It's almost the same thing as in American football, only it's called a try and it's worth less points. Same concept. You run the ball into the end zone. So,
1: so, so before you go any further, like we're talking eighteen hundreds, and like all of this stuff started early eighteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. Does it? Does the beginning of American football back then? predate rugby, or has rugby just been since Greco-Roman times and I'm just off my rocker?
0: No, it's uh, the development of American football kind of was running parallel to the development of rugby. Mm. Um, The 1820s, the 1830s, you started to see these offshoots in Europe of what we would now call predecessors to rugby. But it wasn't until 1871 that its governing body was formally founded. Uh, But throughout the latter part of the 1800s, rugby is developing. American football is developing. People are still playing soccer. You know, it's still one of the most popular sports on the face of the earth. But everywhere you go is kind of playing a football-based game a little differently. It's kind of like the development of baseball. You know, you had Rounders and you had Town Ball and you had the Massachusetts game. All these different games that were all kind of the same, But we're all kind of different, but they're all developing at different time, like at the same time in different areas. So it was the same thing with American football. It was the same thing with the Canadian running game, the same thing with rugby. And then rugby has a split later on. I was looking a little bit into that. I got down that rabbit hole. But I guess in the later part of the 1870s and the early 1880s, there's a split in rugby, and that's all happening while this is going on. So it's chaos. Uh, but Harvard liked rugby, and they liked to the try, what, what, what's called in rugby the try. So they began tweaking these rules a little bit, and on June 4th, 1875, they played Tufts University in what I would argue should be the first recognized collegiate football game. Mm-hmm. The teams were 11-on-11, 11 11, like they are today. Carrying the ball was perfectly legal, as a... It is today. And when you tackled the ball carrier, play stopped, just like it does today. Uh, this was actually really popular with not just Harvard, but Tufts liked it. A bunch of the Massachusetts universities liked it. And finally, after a year, they Harvard convinced Yale they were going to play. And this was the famous game. You often see it listed as the concessionary rules game because both schools had to concede something. Mm-hmm. Basically, Yale conceded it wasn't going to be a soccer game. It was going to be this, you know, weird form of rugby. Harvard gave up a couple of their own rules, like they weren't playing eleven on eleven anymore. They were playing fifteen on fifteen just for this game. Uh, and so Harvard beat Yale four to nothing in this concessionary rules game. And both schools loved it. Both student bodies loved it. Interestingly enough, representatives from Princeton were at the game because they had a feeling this was the way the sport was going to evolve. And after they watched the game, it was like, yep, that's what it's going to be. And modern football was born. Now we're off and running. In the crowd that day was a man named Walter Camp because he was going to Yale, he was a Yale, he eventually became a Yale alum. He too realized that this was going to be the future of the rivalry of what we now just call the game between Harvard and Yale. And being that he was so desperate to beat Harvard, he began scheming and coming up with different ways to improve the game. And so much like baseball had their early uh, baseball players association meetings in New York City where they would come up with rules and everything, Uh, early college football had these annual rules conventions at the Massatoit House Hotel in Massachusetts. And Walter Camp would go to these every year. And he was a player and he was a coach. And, you know, he went to one of the big founding schools in Yale. And he came up with basically the entire blueprint of American football. He came up with the idea of the line of scrimmage. He came up with... Uh, the snap from the center to the quarterback. He finally got it rammed through that it is formally eleven on eleven. You still saw some fifteen on fifteen games going on into the early eighteen eighties. He made boom. Now it's eleven on eleven. You have down and distance, you know, first down and ten, second down and eight, etc. If you don't get a if you don't get a first down and four downs, it's a turnover. He came up with a recognizable scoring system. The, you know, you had the touchdown, you had the field goal, you had the safety. They were worth different points back then. They weren't the, the current scoring system we have now, but it was the foundation. You could see where it was going. Uh, the modern length of the field, which has not changed since 1881, and probably the most unique and the most American idea until the one we're going to talk about later, blocking. Blocking is allowed in American football. In soccer, you can't block other people from getting to the ball. And in rugby, while you have the big rugby scrums, you can't just run straight up interference. Well, in American football, not only was blocking legal, blocking was encouraged to keep everybody away from the ball carrier. It's a brilliant invention. Uh, He also named the list of All-Americans every year until his death. The Walter Camp Foundation, which still exists, they still name the All-Americans every year. What the hell's an All-American? It's like a collegiate all-star, basically. And uh, he's correctly, because of all this, called the father of American football.
1: And then football didn't change again for 150 years. All right, great episode, everybody. Yes, yes.
0: Now you've probably noticed we've only been talking about the Northeast and specifically New England. Mm. There was national expansion. Michigan beat Racine College one to nothing in 1879, and what is considered the first game played west of Pennsylvania, Uh, Minnesota, Northwestern, and the University of Chicago all followed in 1880. 1887 saw the University of Virginia field their team. You know the first really major Southern school. And then 1880 was, of course, the first Duke, U- or I think that's supposed to be 1890, actually, was the first Duke-UNC football game. The big basketball rivalry, but they played football as well. And so as we hit the 20th century, the, the sport is growing. It's more popular than ever at the collegiate level. We'll talk about the pros in a little bit, a little bit, but it's also more violent and more bloody than it ever was before. The 1894 Harvard-Yale game was famously called the Hampton Park Bloodbath because four players ended up permanently in wheelchairs at the end of the game. Uh, Many schools across the South stopped playing altogether after Georgia fullback Richard Van Albin Gammon died on the field from a concussion that he got in a game against Virginia in 1897. So see, concussions are nothing new, folks. In 1905, no less than 19 fatalities occurred on the field during games. That's not counting players who got hurt and got taken home or got taken to the hospital and died later. That's just people who died in the course of the game on the field. Fuck. Yes. Now, this famously led Teddy Roosevelt, who was the president at the time, to quote-unquote threaten to ban the game altogether. And this was the brilliance of TR. He knew he had no legal authority to ban the game. But he threatened it to get there to be action because he was a big fan of football. He liked football. He wanted football to continue. And he knew that if uh, the outcry was such against all these deaths, if the fatalities kept going, eventually the media outcry and the public outcry was going to be so great that parents weren't going to let their kids play football anymore. Does this all sound familiar? Because this is what they're talking about today with the concussions and everything. Jesus. So Teddy Roosevelt famously threatened to ban the game if they didn't improve it, even though he legally had no uh, grounds to do that. So 1906, 62 colleges got together and they came out with a series of reforms which uh, banned mass formation plays like the Flying Wedge, where you'd have seven, eight, nine guys all running and just a mass formation head on into another group of people, which is where a lot of the fatalities were coming from. Uh, They banned interlocking interference, which literally uh, linemen used to lock their arms like you were line dancing or put their thumbs in each other's belt loops and just run full on. Now you can't do that. Now you have to be independent people. And it also allowed the second most American thing, the forward pass. And what is that? Well, it allows you to actually pick the ball up and throw the ball forward. You know, in soccer, you can't throw the ball at all, unless you're the goalie. And in rugby, you could throw the ball as much as you want, but you can only throw it behind you. You cannot advance the ball forward in the air. In America, we said, you know what? No, the hell with it. We're going to throw the ball. And this completely opened the game up. Walter Camp always wanted the game to be more about uh, speed rather than strength. It never really happened until 1906 and the allowing of the uh, forward pass. And to this day, it's still American
1: football's signature feature. So were they like wearing helmets at this point? Uh, By the uh, 1906,
0: you might have had some crude leather helmets. By the 20s, by the beginning of the NFL, you had like the leather helmet that you see like, you know, in Three Stooges skits and everything. Mm -hmm. That existed. And the the teens and everything, I'm not quite sure to be perfectly honest with you. All right, so now we're going to go on to uh, the NFL itself. Now, you probably noticed that we were talking about college that whole time because baseball was king of the pro sports. Professional football was rife with leagues that were jokes, that folded, that had teams come and go. There was rampant gambling, there was rampant corruption, yada, yada, yada. People like college football. Hockey was a niche sport, much like it is today. And basketball hadn't been invented yet. So that was your your sports world in 1920. And on August 20th, 1920, four Ohio-based football teams met at a Huntmobile dealership. You ever hear the Huntmobile? It's an no. old car. It doesn't exist anymore. But the most American of sports, of course, started – The one great American love the NFL started at the other great American love, cars, you know, at a car dealership. And their official stated goal was to, quote unquote, raise the standard of professional football in every way possible to eliminate bidding for players between rival clubs and to secure cooperation in the formation of schedules. Basically, they're acknowledging that uh, money is an issue, competition is an issue, Ridiculous schedules are an issue and we're going to try to make professional football, dare I say, professional. And so this league became the American Professional Football Association, the AFPA. It had 14 teams originally that were based in six states. Two of these teams, the Chicago Bears and the Arizona Cardinals, still play in the NFL today. (sighs) Now, despite all that hubbub about formation of schedules and cooperation and professionalism. You could play basically whatever schedule you wanted to play. You could play more games. You could play less games. You could play teams within the uh, AFPA. You could play teams outside the AFPA. You could play college teams. They don't really care. And whoever had the best winning percentage at the end of the year were the champs. So the Akron professionals, the Akron pros are recognized as the first NFL champs with a record of eight wins, zero losses, and three ties. They played 11 games. Other teams played like 16 or 17. It was ridiculous. In 1922, the AFPA became the NFL, the National Football League. And in 1932, a quirk in this terrible league rules, because they kept the system, where you could schedule as many teams as you wanted and whoever had the best winning percentage won. They kept this system until 1932 when there was a tie. And so because of that, they had to have a one-game playoff for the championship, which Chicago Bears won. And this playoff was so popular with the media, with the fans. They made so much money off this. It was on the radio. It was everything. That immediately for the next year, for 1933, the NFL realigned the league into two divisions, East and West, and the winners of the divisions had to play each other for the title every year thereafter. And so money, not coincidentally enough, had done with two embarrassing title controversies in 1921 and 1925, had not. They finally got them to change the system. That was a fucking joke. (laughs) Uh And these championship games that were now being played between the division leaders, this led to what is famously called the greatest game ever played, which is the 1958 championship game. And I won't go into too much detail on the greatest game ever played, but this was on television. People could watch it for the first time in their homes. It was the title game for the league. It was the New York Giants and the Baltimore Colts, two big market teams, and it went into overtime. It went into sudden death overtime. It was a close game. It was a tie game. And people actually got to watch it. And this is considered by a lot of sports historians to be the point when football overtook baseball as America's number one sport it was after that game. Uh, while all this was going on, you had numerous leagues that were always popping up to challenge the NFL as the premier football league. There were three versions of the AFL, three different American football leagues. There was the AAFC, the All-American Football Conference. There was the WFL, the World Football League, which was a lot later. And they all fell at one time or another to the might of the NFL. And usually when a league would fold, the NFL would take a couple teams from it. The L.A. Rams joined uh, from the 1938 AFL. The Cleveland Browns and the San Francisco 49ers joined from the All-American Football Conference. And they're all still playing today. They came from other leagues. However, in 1960, a new league, the fourth version of the American Football League, they weren't really original with these names, started. And using the power of television, more specifically, color television, the AFL established them as a match for the older league. The AFL had a weekly schedule not too dissimilar from what we have today. You could watch AFL games on network television each and every week in color.
1: I thought you were about to say Netflix. No, 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 no. (laughs) Network television,
0: over-the-air television. Uh, The AFL also did a lot of little modern quirks we still do today. They put names on the back of jerseys. The NFL didn't have any names on the back of their jerseys at this point. The AFL did. The AFL embraced the forward pass. You know, the forward pass at this point was 28 years – no, more than that. It was like – 58 years old, give or take. And it was used in the NFL, but the NFL was still primarily a running league. There's the famous quote that it was three yards in a cloud of dust in the NFL. The AFL just said, fuck it, we're going to throw the ball all the goddamn time. (laughs) And this led to everything the NFL didn't want back in that 1920 meeting. You had uh, the leagues bidding for talent. Talent you know, don't, don't sign with the NFL. We can give you double the money or we could do this, or, you know, we'll we'll give you so much money that, uh, you know, just leave your team and and come work for us, you know, just abandon them in the middle of the game. And the famous one was of course, Joe Namath, who got paid $440,000 to play for the Jets in the AFL in, I believe it was 1963, which is like, $4.1 $4.1 million today, which is nothing in the grand scheme of things with how much money people are, quarterbacks are making today. But nobody was making more than that. I mean, we, we talked about the greatest game ever played. That was 1958. Pat Summerall talks about making $15,000 in 1958, and that was insane money. By 63, you had somebody making $440,000. Jesus Because now you have two leagues competing. So uh, negotiations very quickly began on a merger. And in 1966, both leagues announced that there was going to be a total and complete merger. The entirety of the AFL was going to be merged into the NFL, uh, which was going to take place in 1970. But before that, they would play four joint championship games. So you'd go through the playoffs, you'd win your league championship, and then you would go to the very long named AFL NFL championship game which after two of them they became retroactively known as the Super Bowl
1: oh I've seen some of those
0: you've seen some of those and we talked about them in our sports ball episode they are still consistently the highest rated television shows of all time every even if you don't like football a lot of people like Super Bowl for the commercials for the food for whatever uh, and so that's the history of football up to 1970. We'll just go through just a few dates here, and then I'll turn it over to you for any questions or comments. So despite all this, despite the fact that the merger was announced in 1966, the NFL didn't even have a playoff until 1967. You still had just the two division champions playing each other. In 1967, they expanded it to four teams. So the number one and number two in each division would play each other, and then the two winners would play, and then you'd play the AFL. 1970 saw the merger with the AFL, which broke the the league up into six divisions, two conferences, and you got a six team playoff. Uh, 1978, they expanded it to a 10 team playoff. And 1990, they expanded it to a 12 team playoff. And that was a really good system. And they kept that for 30 years. And then last year, they fucked it up and they made it a 14 game playoff, and it sucks. Uh, 1961, they expanded the schedule to 14 games. Before 1961, the schedule in the NFL was crazy. For years, you didn't even have to play the same number of games. And then right around World War II, they put everybody on a uniform schedule, but then World War II broke out. So every year it changed depending on how many teams and how many players. So there was no real uniformity to it until about 1961 when they came out with the 14-game schedule. Other than that, it was changing every year. 1978, they went to a 16-game schedule, and then they kept that from 1978 all the way up till this year when they fucked it up again and they added a 17th game to it.
1: Jesus. Uh, Mike, yeah, I, opinions.
0: I know. I'm not alone on these. The 17th game schedule and the 14-team playoff, they suck. They got to go. Uh, 1970, the league had 26 teams after the AFL merger. In 76, they expanded to 28, and one of their many attempts to avoid an antitrust lawsuit. In 1930, they expanded to 30 teams, and that's for my team. Carolina came in was 1996. Uh, 1999, they expanded to 31 teams, and then finally in 2002, they went to their current 32 teams. So, going by the math, we're at 20 years. There has never been longer than a 20-year period where the league has not expanded since 1920. And uh, this year will actually be 20 years from the last expansion. And the league shows no real sign of expanding. So that's kind of interesting. So somebody will have to, you know, threaten them with a Monopoly suit or something.
1: Nice.
0: But that is the birth of American football in 35 minutes or so.
1: <laughs> questions, comments, my boy? I wish I had questions for you, man, but it's football. I know about as much as I want to. When was the last football game you actually watched? Um were the Bills in the Super Bowl anytime recently? In the nineties. Okay, no. Uh I don't know. It was like a Super Bowl like four years ago, I think. All right, that's fair. Yeah, I don't I don't watch a lot of football. I know how it all works because I dated a cheerleader in high school for like a hot minute, but that's about as much as I, I know about the sport. That was the greatest way to slide in a humble brag I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, you know, I did it as cheerleader for
1: a while. So uh, I kind of know a little bit about it, but I mean, I like it. It, it was fine. <laughs> it, it, it's 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 a game. It exists. I can keep up with the scores and I can name maybe two teams. Now, when the Super Bowl's on, you don't watch it for the commercials or anything. No, uh, honestly, it's been so long since I my my mom used to throw a Super Bowl party when I was growing up just to have an excuse to feed all of the neighborhood kids. Um, and honestly, I without that being part of my you know yearly existence, I just don't even remember that the Super Bowl's on at this point. I, I work in it, man, like there's. Fewer people who are into football than you would well, think. So they don't talk about it very often at work. No. The only
0: reason why I ask is, you know, the librarian where I work, she does not like football. She doesn't know anything about football. I don't think she could name one player or one team or anything. But she DVRs the Super Bowl every year. And just fast forwards the game and just watches the commercials.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't even do that. You can watch the commercials on YouTube. Well, yeah, now you can, and you know that
0: kind of pisses me off because I, as much as I enjoy football, I enjoy the commercials just as much. But anymore, they're spoiled before the game's even on. Yeah. So I don't. I don't like that aspect of it. We need to go back to the old way.
1: Yeah. Usually, the Monday after the Super Bowl, uh, I'll, I'll go into work and people will be like, "Oh man, did you watch the Super Bowl?" And I'm like, "Who are you asking?" <laughs> Bitch, do I look
0: like I watched the Super Bowl? <laughs> so that's that's football. The playoffs are going on now. As you listen to this, the second round of the playoffs will be starting. So if you're into football, check it out. If you're not into football, that's cool too. But, hey, you can impress your friends now because you know just a tiny, minute fraction of mm-hmm. the history of America's game.
1: Or if you're a huge fucking nerd, uh Learn just enough about the like the big five sports in the US and then uh, give yourself a small competition every day to see how many you can fuck up in a single sentence. What's the fifth? Uh, baseball, basketball, football, hockey uh, isn't there a fifth one?
0: No. I mean, if if you're going by attendance, it's NASCAR, but even I wouldn't consider it a big five.
1: Uh, I usually mix soccer in there. No,
0: no, this is America, son.
1: (laughs) I don't know. Soccer's gotten way more popular in the last, like, five years. Well, it has, especially on the youth level. But the sad part is we have a
0: professional soccer league, but basically, like, if you were to put it in Europe it would be like such a minor league. Like the level of competition in our pro soccer is so terrible. And that's why we suck at the world cup and the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, so no, you, 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 you can't, you, you can't count that. (laughs) I mean, may, if you're going women's sports, it's probably number one. Our women's soccer team is fucking awesome. Um, but if you're going men's sports, no,
1: yeah, I, I feel like we need to be celebrating our, our, our women's soccer team way more because they just keep bringing home championships. Yeah.
0: They just win a lot, but the problem is it's soccer and they're in America. (laughs) If they were in any other country in the world, they'd probably be heroes.
1: Yeah, it's true. But all right, take us the fuck out of here. Well, uh, thanks for uh, not falling asleep in this episode. I I, I feel pretty good about that. Um, uh, if you like what you listen to here, well, I'm sorry, we're never going to talk about this topic again. But uh, we that's love it. probably true. We, we'd love it if you gave us a like and a subscribe. Uh, throw throw us out a rating out there on iTunes. Pre-save us some Spotify. Definitely helps us move up in those charts. Uh, Want to remind you that we do have a website where we. Uh, Semi regularly, we'll probably do a few more blog posts. Mark, um, we post I have a bunch posts. of them written that I just haven't posted. I yeah, need to get on that. Yeah, fair. Um, but we're also, uh, you know, Spotify, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Listen Notes, about five hundred other places. Um, we are uh, the website is thewhitneewhiskeycast uh, dot com, and we are out there on Facebook and Instagram at the and Whiskey Cast. There is uh, an E in whiskey and no H in wit, despite what Mark may tell you. Um, Boo. uh, Are are we starting it next week, Mark? Yeah, I think we are.
0: Uh, We're going to start the Roman Empire. It's probably going to be, well, it's definitely going to be two parts. It may be three. We have to see how it goes. So we'll Mm -hmm. give ourselves a cushion. We'll start it next week. And I've been debating on where to split these episodes, so I think we're going to do the Seven Kings of Rome and then maybe a little bit of uh, the Roman Republic. And then part two could be the Empire and the Fall and et cetera,
1: et cetera. I love that. Yeah, I'm planning to kind of pull up some like mythology and talk about... I mean, I know Homer was Greek, but it's all the same fucking thing, so I'll probably talk about some of the, the mythology and the legends and whatnot, and just rename all the gods. Pretty much. Yeah. Thanks Rome. <laughs> uh, but of course we want to give a shout out to Nuno Henry Silva. Thanks for coming on last week, Nuno. Thanks for uh, our, the use of our intro and outro music. Uh, make sure to check the sound cloud for, um, for his music. And, and we'll, we'll put that and his uh, latest book into our show notes. Um but yeah, that, that wraps up American football, everybody. I'm so glad it's done.
0: And, you know, uh, on that Greg's great segue, I just want to say, a uh, big shout out to everyone. All the new listeners that we apparently have, um, you know, Oh God, what did I do there? No, all the new listeners that we apparently have because the, uh, our numbers are like through the roof lately for oh, wow. downloads and for listens, um so you know thank you to all of our fans that have been with us from the beginning and thank you to the people that are uh with us for this hopefully you like what you hear and hopefully you're going to stick around Uh, we have a pretty big back catalog if you haven't checked that out but the last five or six episodes or so
1: have been rather popular and that's kind of neat to see so welcome yeah, that's awesome. Uh, feel free to engage with us on social media, too. Let us know you're out there. Uh, I usually get some some DMs here and there of, of people saying, hey, good episode. But, you know, it's uh, it's always nice to hear from fans, and, uh, you know, tell your friends if you like what you're listening to. But, um, you know, until next week, cheers. Salud.